0: and welcome once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. Sometimes we choose a path, and it's a perfectly fine path, and sometimes our path is redirected somewhere else. Lead teacher Jeff Norris continues the series Radical Renewal with this sermon entitled The Unexpected Path of a Spirit-Filled Life, which covers Acts chapter 16. For more information and to watch or hear other sermons, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for being
1: uh, so gracious and kind to us through the, the love and the mercy and the grace found in Jesus. Uh, we gather in this space this morning and, and online to declare the greatness of his name. And we ask, O oh, Father, that as we open again to the book of Acts, would you bless this time? Would you use it for your glory? Would you press it deep into our hearts? And would you do what only you can do? We ask that in Jesus' name, amen. I'm gonna start us off this morning a little different than I normally start. We're just gonna read the text that I'm gonna have us in this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 16. You'll see it on the screen, but would love for you to read along, either on your Bible or if you have it on your phone, do that with me. If not, then read along on the screen. We're picking up in, in Acts 16, verses one through 10 and then verses 16 through 24. So let's read this, follow along with me. Verse one, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of her that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. into the inner prison and fasten their feet in the stocks. This is the word of the Lord. May he bless the preaching and the reading and the teaching of his word this morning. I've used this illustration before, but I think it's important and appropriate this morning to to use it again as it leads us into kind of the main theme of where we're headed in in these verses. One of the more well-known verses in the New Testament if you've been in or around church for a length of time is Ephesians 5.18, which says, do not get drunk with wine, for it leads to debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, perhaps like me, you grew up in a religious context, a church context, where you certainly knew the first half of that verse. Do not get drunk with wine. You knew that it was a sin to be drunk. And you may have grown up in a religious context where not only was it a sin to be drunk, but it was pressed in to the extent that it was a sin to drink alcohol at all, if you're legally of age. But I I want you to understand what Paul is saying here. Paul is saying, do not get drunk with wine for it leads to debauchery, and that certainly is a command of God, that drunkenness is a sin but he's actually the bigger piece of what he's trying to press into us is the second half of that verse. But be filled with the Spirit. And and here's what he's saying. He's, He's essentially saying in the same way that when you're drunk with wine, you do things you normally wouldn't do, you go places you normally wouldn't go, you say things you normally wouldn't say, you risk things that you normally wouldn't risk, and you endure things you normally wouldn't endure in the same way that alcohol brings all that out of you in a way that leads to debauchery. Be drunk on the Spirit. Because what we know from the teachings of the New Testament is that we know that when we believe upon Jesus, when we follow him, surrender to him by faith, as our Lord and Savior, that he immediately upon that regenerating faith places the Holy Spirit of God in us. The most common phrase that is used in the Bible to describe Christians is actually the phrase in Christ, that we are in him and that he is in us and that we are united to Jesus. We talked about this back at Easter. And what a profound truth that is, that the spirit of the living God in all of his manifold greatness now dwells within the human heart, empowering, changing Regenerating, shifting, renewing desires and who we are, making us more and more like Jesus. And so what Paul is saying is he's saying, be drunk on the Spirit. Be so full of the Spirit that you go places you normally wouldn't go. You do things you normally wouldn't do. You say things you normally wouldn't say. You risk things you normally wouldn't risk. And you endure things you normally wouldn't endure. Not in ways that lead to debauchery, but because you're drunk with the Spirit, in ways that lead to the glory of God and the establishment of his kingdom. In other words, don't be in control of your life. You're out of control when you're drunk with alcohol. Be out of control, if it were, as it were, because you're drunk in the spirit. Let him lead you in such a way that he's bringing about radical renewal in your life that would have never happened if not for the spirit in your life. Here's the problem. As I observe, my own life, and the life of the church, I would say that there are very few of us, there are very few of us who understand or experience the reality of a spirit-led, spirit-directed, spirit-filled life as the way God intended. Very few of us live that out, and that's not a condemnation, that's not to say shame on you because I'm right there with you. And one of the things that we're gonna see in the text that we just read today that Paul's gonna model for us is a broken sinner just like we are, the, the very man who said uh, that I am the worst of sinners, the chief of sinners. What we're gonna see is this. We're gonna see this main idea, and i want to read it to you because I want you to hear it and not miss it. A spirit-filled and directed life will likely take you down paths that you would not have otherwise considered. But it will also take you into God-saturated realities that you would have otherwise missed. I wanna say that again. A spirit-filled and spirit-directed life will likely take you down paths that you would have otherwise not considered. But it will also take you into God-saturated realities that you would have otherwise missed. We see this on full display in Acts chapter 16 in the verses that we read. The first thing that we see is this in the first five verses is we see Paul modeling for us, demonstrating to us a spirit-filled surrender. A spirit-filled surrender. Now, if you were with us last week, you heard Acts 15 You read it, you heard it taught, and we emphasize so significantly the grace of God and that there is absolutely nothing that we bring to the table for our salvation, that it is done, that there's nothing that we do, and that there's actually this life-stealing nature to religious performance. That there's nothing we put before God that ever impresses him in such a way that it would win us favor in his presence. The only thing that puts us in right standing with God is the finished work of Jesus, and he's done it all. And so a big issue in Acts chapter 15 that's recorded for us is the issue of circumcision and the Jewish moral law and all the ways in which they were pressing upon people a religious burden that God doesn't put on them. So they would say things like, yes, believe upon Jesus, but you also have to be circumcised, and you also have to keep the Mosaic Law. And it's not just the Mosaic Law that we read about In the Old Testament, it's all these other traditions that we've now elevated to the same level as the Mosaic law. And you really have to do all these things to really be saved. And so it was Jesus' work and his grace plus the works of man that ultimately got you salvation. And Paul, along with the apostles, all the other apostles and leaders of the Jerusalem church, had a council. And in this council, they decided, and it was an incredible decision that changed the trajectory of the church from there on out. And what they decided was, you don't need any of that. To the Gentile believers who aren't Jewish, you don't have to be circumcised. You don't have to keep the moral Mosaic law in order to be saved. Now, the law is important, it shows us what pleases God, but it's not a means unto salvation. And so the only thing that is required for salvation, according to what the Jerusalem Council, the apostles and the leaders of the Jerusalem church said in Acts 15, is belief upon Jesus by faith alone, uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus alone. That's it. And that's what was established. And they send out this letter to all the churches, all these churches throughout Southern Asia and ultimately into Greece. And they tell the Gentile believers and they spread the word and they say, look, I got good news for you the gospel of grace don't listen to these judaizers you do not have to be circumcised and these churches rejoiced and it says everywhere that they took that letter the churches were strengthened and grew in number and luke the writer of acts wants us to know how incredibly significant this jerusalem council decision was now, we get to the beginning of Acts chapter 16, and if you're reading critically, you're going, then what the heck did Paul just do? Because you get within the first four verses of Acts chapter 16, he's just gone to battle over, you don't have to be circumcised to be saved. And then the very first thing he does is he goes out on his second missionary journey with Timothy and Silas, as he says, hey Timothy, um, I'm going to circumcise you. Would have loved to have been there for that conversation. <laughs> You're going to do what now? And you go, is Paul a hypocrite? Like He just went to battle for the fact that you don't have to be circumcised. Why would the very first thing he would do upon his missionary second missionary journey would be to circumcise young, probably 20-year-old Timothy? Here's why. First Corinthians nine, as Paul is writing, the Corinthian church, we get a really important insight into why Paul would do this. In 1 Corinthians nine, in verse 19, he says this. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews that I may share with them in its blessings. So here's what's going on with Paul. Once he's established very clearly, he and the other apostles, once they have established, circumcision is not needed for salvation. There is nothing we bring to the table other than faith alone and grace alone and Christ alone. Once that's been established, he now goes into the mindset of what needs to happen in order for the gospel to go forth most powerfully. And what he's saying to Timothy and others is this. We're about to go and preach the gospel, and there's gonna be a lot of Jews that we encounter. And many of these Jews in this surrounding area know who you are. You've been, you've been uh, proclaimed in these areas as being a great young leader of the faith, and they know you're not circumcised, and they know your father is a Greek. Now, we know from 2 from, uh, Timothy, Paul tells us a great deal about uh, Timothy, or a great insight to, to Timothy's mother and grandmother, that they raised him in the faith, that they pressed the scriptures into him. But we get kind of implicitly uh, the indication that his father was in a well-known Greek that was not a believer. And so here's what Paul knew. Remember, Paul is a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's a Pharisee. He knows how the Jews think. And he knows that if Timothy isn't circumcised, they're not going to listen and so for the sake that they may hear the gospel and believe, he says, Timothy, we're going to circumcise you, which speaks volumes of Timothy's faith, that Timothy would say okay to that. I know I don't have to be, but if it means that the Jews will hear the gospel of grace in Jesus, then okay, okay. It's not a means until salvation, it's a measure that I'm willing to take to surrender my rights so that the lost may be found. To surrender my rights as well, there's two implications to this. That I would be willing to surrender my rights so that the lost may be found and so that the unity of the church may be preserved. That there would be no unneeded disagreements. The nature of salvation has been established once and for all from the Jerusalem Council, Now, if this means that we can win others and retain the unity of the church, then let's do it. Uh, Since I've already used the illustration of drinking, of drunkenness, it would be similar. It would be akin to this. If If you had believed in your religious background, if you had believed that not drinking alcohol at all would be a part of your salvation, that that would be something that actually gets you saved, that God would look upon that and go, okay, he believes in Jesus, but he also has never uh, drunk a drop of alcohol, so I'm gonna accept him into my presence, then we would rightfully come to you and say, whoa, 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 no, no, no. That's Jesus plus something, that's grace and works. It's only the work of Jesus. So you gotta drop that ideology that you think not drinking is getting you favor with God. You can. You have freedom. If you're of age, the Bible permits that you can have a drink. Drunkenness is a sin. Let's talk about this. But it, does, it has nothing to do with salvation. Now, having established that, if there were a situation where not drinking alcohol put me in a position to where I could share the gospel more powerfully with someone who also doesn't drink alcohol, then I'm not going to drink. I'm not going to have a drink because in that scenario, it means that the gospel is going to have a clearer path to the heart of the person that I'm trying to share with. That's what's happening here. Paul is surrendering his rights. Timothy is surrendering his rights for the sake of the unity of the church and for the, so that the lost may be found. One of the things that stands out like crazy with Paul right here, and as a result of his discipleship of Timothy, what stands out with Timothy is this. Paul is as steadfast as you could possibly want him and long for him to be on the essentials, on the nature of salvation, of what is it that we need to never budge on. But he is incredibly loose with the non-essentials. Incredibly loose with the non-essentials. Martin Luther said it this way. He said, as concerning faith, we ought to be invincible And more hard, if it might be, than the adamant stone. But as touching charity, we ought to be soft and more flexible than the reed or leaf that is shaken with the wind and ready to yield to everything. John Newton, the great writer of the song, the hymn Amazing Grace, he said it this way. He said, Paul was a reed in non-essentials an iron pillar in essentials. One of the things I've observed in the church over this past year is we've gotten this confused. We've been an iron fist in some non-essentials when the scriptures doesn't call us to be. We've mixed up where do we need to be the iron pillar, and where do we need to be the reed? There's a a problem that arouses in the church, and I know the American church, that's where we are, so I'm gonna speak to that. And the problem that, that comes about in our culture is this. We love our rights more than we love the expansion of the kingdom of God. Just ask us, we'll tell you. And we will be iron pillars on our rights. And we'll be reeds on other things that we shouldn't be. I wanna ask you a question. I'm gonna give you three questions as we work our way through the text. Here's the first one. In what specific ways are you holding on to your rights? And as a result, your witness and or the unity of the church is suffering. Holding on to our rights in such a way that, yeah, did you, you, you remember what Paul said at the beginning of that verse that we read in 1 Corinthians chapter nine? He said, I'm free, I'm free, I don't have to do anything. But for the sake of those who might be saved, to the Jews I became like a Jew. To those under the law, I became like those under the law. To those outside the law, I became like those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak. To the strong, I became strong. In order that any of them might be saved, I gave up my rights for the sake of the kingdom of God going forward. It doesn't mean in any shape, form, or fashion that becoming all things to all people means that we enter into sin with them But it does mean that we die to self in ways that we're deeply uncomfortable with. And we surrender our rights. There is a spirit-led surrender on display for us in this passage. There's also a spirit-led sensitivity. When you get into verses six through 10, you get this story of the Macedonian call. It might even have that, that headline, if you will, on that part of your Bible the Macedonian call where Paul and Silas and Timothy are really wanting to go north up into Asia to spread the gospel. And all the text tells us, all the scriptures tell us in this is that the Spirit forbid them. They weren't allowed to go. We don't even know what that looks like. What, what did it mean? Did, did like the Spirit build a wall that they couldn't get past? Like what does it mean they forbid them? What it means is at, at a certain level, Paul and Silas and Timothy were so sensitive to the leading of the Spirit that they knew very clearly where the Spirit was leading them and where he wasn't. And you would go, well, I don't, I don't understand. Like, doesn't, doesn't the Spirit of God say that, I mean, it even says it in the Scripture that he desires that all would believe and... Come into repentance, so why would he forbid the gospel going into Asia? Like, what, what, what's going on there? Well, then furthermore, it says, well, they, they reroute and want to go into a little bit more northwest into Bithynia, and it says again that the spirit of Jesus did not allow them to do so. And so, you can imagine that they're probably confused. What are you doing, God? There's a sensitivity that they have to the Spirit that is such that they're so obedient that they would actually, in all of their fervor and zealous nature of, of wanting to proclaim the gospel, that they're sensitive to the Spirit saying, No, not there, not yet. Why? Well, Paul gets a vision. And it's a Macedonian man, which Macedonia means that they're gonna go across the Aegean Sea into Greece to take the gospel, now they didn't know it as this back then, but for the first time into Europe. And to take it over into Macedonia. And that's where God wanted them to go. And so they do so, they follow the leading of the Spirit and they end up in this important Roman city of Philippi. Now what's interesting is Peter, in 1 Peter, Peter's writing a letter to a group of churches. And one of the churches that he includes, one of the group of churches that he includes are the churches in Bithynia. So we learn, oh, the gospel did go into Bithynia. It did go into Asia, but it just wasn't through Paul and Silas and Timothy. It was through other disciples. Where is God calling you? Do you have spirit, uh, spirit-led sensitivity that in a way that you can only know as you spend time with the Lord and sense his presence and his leading in your life that you know where he's leading? And you're willing to not go to something, go towards something that in your mind and in the rationale of everyone around you, it seems really appropriate to do so. There would have been no one that said, Don't take the gospel to people who don't know in Asia. But for whatever reason, the Spirit said, No, I'm gonna send other people there. I want you in Macedonia. It reminds me of when Rachel and I first went into ministry. We had just been married, we joined staff with crew. And our first desire, where we were first assigned to go, was to China, to work on college campuses over there and spend at least a year, probably longer, laboring in Southeast Asia. And that was our plan for the first several months. As we spent more time with the Lord, though, it seemed that God was increasingly saying, that's not what I'm calling you, that's what you want, that's not what I want. Okay, where do you want us, Lord? I'll tell you this, Hattiesburg, Mississippi was nowhere on our radar. (laughs) There was nothing in us that was going, I bet God wants us in Hattiesburg. But the more we prayed and the more that the Lord had us have conversations with those who were leading over us, that became the place that God said, There, go there. Let me ask you this question. Here's the second question I want you to ponder. In what specific ways are you choosing to suffer? Oh, no, wait, that's the third question. Let's go back to the second. You got a sneak peek at what's coming. We may not, I may not, I may have forgotten to give them that one. Second question is this. In what specific ways have you been insensitive to the Spirit's leading in your life? In what specific ways have you been insensitive to the Spirit's leading in your life? Now, here's what's interesting about the Hattiesburg story. We sense very clearly that God's saying, not East Asia, Hattiesburg, Mississippi. So we go and we spend two years there and they were miserable two years. They were hard, I've shared this before but it was during that time that I had an incredibly difficult bout with anxiety and depression. And I was very confused as to why the Spirit of God would say no to what we were originally planning to do and take me to this place to cause me to go through that. Now, in the years since, I have seen clearly, and sometimes the Lord lets us see clearly why he leads us into certain things. Sometimes he doesn't. But in this scenario, I was able to see clearly that the reason he took me to Hattiesburg, Mississippi was to kick my tail was to humble me, was to show me in ways that I didn't even realize how not dependent on him I had been, to prepare me to be the leader that I needed to be. There was so much pride in my heart. I mean, pride's always there. We're always wrestling with that, but there was a unique pride in a young 23-year-old that he needed to squash. And in his, in his sovereignty, Hattiesburg was where it needed to happen. So here's the third one. You already got a glimpse of where I'm headed. Oftentimes, when we have this sensitivity, the leading of the Spirit, and the direction of the Spirit, it leads us into this Spirit-led suffering. There's a suffering that comes with that. And you go, wow. Do I wanna be a Christian? Is that, where, where's the hope in this? Well, hopefully I can explain it in a way that helps you see. We see it in the text where as Paul and Silas and Timothy follow the leading of the Spirit, where does it it get them? It gets them to Philippi. And it gets them to see some incredible conversion stories that we're going to talk more about next week. Just so you know, if you love Acts chapter 16 because of Lydia and the Philippian jailer, hang tight. We'll get there. So they see some incredible conversion stories, but where does it land them? It lands them having been beaten by rods and thrown in prison. There's a part of us, another thing that we've bought into is not only have we bought into that my rights are what's most important, we've also bought into the lie that's been perpetuated among the American church for far too long that following Christ and having a spirit-led, spirit-filled life results in circumstantial comfort. And we have to let go of that because God never promised that. In fact... What he promised was that if you follow me and if you follow where the Spirit's leading in this life on this side of heaven, there will be common, often, circumstantial suffering. Not because I'm a mean God, not because I'm out to get you, but because in proclaiming the kingdom of God everywhere you go, it rubs profoundly against the current of the culture around us and you will suffer because of that. This is a hard teaching. It's not suffering for the sake of suffering. Everyone suffers, so how is Christian suffering different? Because it's not suffering for the sake of suffering. It's not suffering without hope. It's actually a suffering that carries with it an unbelievable reward. Paul talks a lot about this in in his letters. And it doesn't, there's, there, we shouldn't have this craving, this unhealthy craving of, oh, Lord, pour out suffering on me. No, it just means that if I'm going to be spirit led and have a sensitivity to the leading of the spirit, then I need to expect that things will not be comfortable. And so therefore, deductive logic tells me, if there is nothing uncomfortable in my life because of me following Jesus, we got a problem. And in a context where we, me with you, I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to us, we want to comfort ourselves to death. And God says, What? That's called heaven, that's called glory. I've called you to enter into the discomfort of taking the gospel to the nations now. And in it, there is joy because in my presence, there is fullness of joy. But there may not be joy in circumstances because we are a people taking the gospel boldly. Remember, we're iron pillars with the gospel. And in so doing, we know that there's gonna be suffering. Here's the third question I want you to, to ponder. In what specific ways are you choosing to suffer for the kingdom of God? Why would I use that word choosing? Well, it's in the text. When we read it at the beginning, you may have missed it, so you can go back and read it again, but and actually the part that I'm referring to, I didn't even read, so you definitely missed it. <laughs> at the end of chapter 16, after Paul and Silas have been in prison and been beaten with rods, at the end of chapter 16, word they, they let the, the jailers know, hey, by the way, we're Roman citizens. And the jailers go tell the magistrates, who the magistrates were the ones that beat them. They say, hey, by the way, these guys... That we beat and imprisoned, they, they're Roman citizens and the magistrates go, oh no. Oh, we didn't know that. And they let him go. You ever thought about why Paul wouldn't use that card before he got beat? Why wouldn't Paul, as soon as they bring the rods out, go, whoa, 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 whoa I'm, a, I'm a Roman citizen. I have my rights. Here's why. Because Paul makes it clear in his writings throughout the rest of the New Testament that he counts it a privilege to suffer for the sake of Christ. He he chose to suffer for the sake of Christ after he had experienced the beating. Friends, the kingdom of God is so counterintuitive and it is so countercultural It presses against everything we naturally desire because our nature is that of sinful self-protection. And the nature of the kingdom of God is the very nature of Jesus, which is self-denial. Die to self so that others may be saved. There's four types of people in the world. Those are the, there are those who don't know Christ and are content in that. They have no desire for Jesus and they're as happy as a lark being lost as they are. There are those who don't know Christ and are discontent. Because in some way, there's a beginning movement within them that's quickening them to the reality of how how unfulfilling, dissatisfying life is. There has to be more. There are those who know Christ and are discontent. And then there are those who know Christ and are content. What's the difference in in those last two? The difference between those who know Jesus and are discontent and those who know Jesus and are content are the ones who are yielding completely to the Spirit of God in their lives. Not perfectly, but in every way, as much as they possibly can, they are being in this rhythm of Spirit-led surrender, Spirit-led sensitivity, and willing to embrace spirit-led suffering. And in that spirit-filled, spirit-directed, spirit-led reality, there's actually a profound joy that makes no sense to those who don't know Jesus. The people that I encounter that are the most miserable are the third category the people who know Jesus, but are fighting against him like crazy to still have the power in their lives, to still be in control, to have a Jeff-led, Jeff-sensitivity life. And they're not giving up. And God in his faithfulness and his grace and his mercy beyond measure continues to work and say, look, You're not gonna find what you're looking for until you surrender to the Spirit of God in your life and let Him fill you. And it's gonna look very different than what you think it will, but you won't regret it. I hope you'll surrender. I hope you'll be sensitive to the Spirit's leading in your life. And I pray that we have a church full of people who are willing to embrace Christ-centered suffering in a way that causes the gospel to profoundly go throughout Atlanta and to the ends of the earth for his glory. Father, thank you. Thank you for who you are in the ways in which you teach us through your scriptures. Thank you that you are a God who never gives up on us in all the ways that we can be defiant and self-centered and self-protective. Even those of us who know you, we know the goodness, we've tasted of the goodness of God. But yet, we still just naturally wanna battle against where you wanna lead us. So Jesus, we praise you that you are so incredibly patient with us. but make us, God, make us more like you. Christ, you are the one who came not to be served but to serve and give your life as a ransom for many, to completely be humbled, to be a servant in the likeness of man, to be humiliated so that we may be brought in Give us your heart, O Jesus, and do it for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Let's sing
0: together. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church Sermon Podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and to find other sermons from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.